Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 2. How many remember the tale of two cities by uh, Dickens? Was it required reading? Can can anyone tell me the first sentence of the book? You guys are great. Probably had to memorize that. Did any? Does anyone know the rest of the book? <laughs> or is that all you read? <laughs> Dickens, the opening paragraph in that book, introduces this universal approach to the book. Good versus evil, sacrifice, death, resurrection is all encompassed in that book. And it takes place during a very turbulent time um, in Europe during the French Revolution. But I'm going to read the, the first paragraph and uh, just so you get a little context And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Written many years ago, it almost sounds like the world we're living in today. But it also reminds me of a tale in the scriptures. And it isn't a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two trees. And we kind of know about these trees. We read about them in Genesis 2. Um, But have we ever really thought that deeply about what they mean? And just like in the tale of two cities, we see one is wisdom, one is foolishness. One is belief, one is unbelief. One is light, one is darkness. One is hope, while the other one is despair. Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9 Say, then the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So back in the book of Genesis, the Genesis is called the book of beginnings. Because in this book, we see the beginning of the universe, of creation. All animals, insects, and other creatures. We see the beginning of plants and flowers and trees. And, of course, we see the beginning of man. But we also see the beginning of evil. We see the beginning of sin. We see the beginning of death. So right there in the first few chapters of the Bible, we see God's beauty as well as the ugliness of sin and its consequences, we are most definitely introduced to the best of times and the worst of times. 
in human history. God created this beautiful creation. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and see just uh, how, it is, how it unfolds and the beauty of it. And God was involved intimately in every aspect of that. And in creation, everything he created was good, the Bible says. And he created man. And after he created man, he said everything was in fact very good. Adam and Eve were permitted to enjoy everything in God's creation. All the good there was for nourishment, pleasure, and as a way of connecting to the Creator. But God, in His providence, gave Adam and Eve, as He does all of us, free will. And that included the opportunity to disobey. And... I believe that Adam and Eve already understood this concept of good and evil. We know that because God told them not to eat of a certain fruit of one tree. And just like a child knows good and bad because his parents tell him, he doesn't need to experience evil to know what evil is. And if he wants to be good, all he has to do is obey. But how many times does a parent tell a child not to do this, not to do that, not to eat the cookies, not to touch something, and yet immediately he goes to the thing that he's been forbidden? I don't know. Maybe even as adults we tend to do the the same thing. And the child can try to excuse himself by saying, well, I really didn't understand the nuances and the aspects of that behavior, and therefore I decided to disobey. But I don't think a parent would really accept that excuse very, very much. We're told by our parents to keep away from certain things. We're prohibited from certain things as a child because it could harm us. And that's exactly what God did when he told Adam not to partake of that fruit. And since... At the beginning, we see this beautiful picture of God and Adam and Eve and them fellowshipping with one another. They, have, they had not partaken of evil yet. They, had, they don't, haven't experienced it yet. They were in this state of innocence. And that's what we call that, that time. That's, that's a time of innocence. And we understand the concept of good and evil, don't we? You don't need to experience it to know it. And, you know, even God says in his word in Psalm 48, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. That's where God's law is written. We understand he's given each of us a conscience, each of us an understanding of right and wrong, good and bad. We don't have to experience it. He writes his law on our hearts. All we need to do is align our will with his, and then we will be walking in righteousness. So we have these two trees that are spoken of in these verses. And although they are distinct, they're certainly pointed out in the scriptures, they probably looked like all the rest of the trees in the garden. And that's, to me, that reminds me of this kind of the subtleness of sin. Its nature is to bait us and to deceive us and to ensnare us. Look what the Bible says about the allure of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3, 6, it's written, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So when we look at these verses, it, the description of this tree, it doesn't really sound that bad, does it? It says it's good. It says it's pleasant. And it says it's desirable. But isn't that how sin works? It kind of puts those things before us. I think if this tree was bad, offensive, and repulsive, the temptation wouldn't have been as great. I think if sin to us immediately looks bad, offensive, and repulsive, instead of good, pleasant, and desirable, we wouldn't be drawn to it. So Satan just wraps sin in this beautiful little package and puts a bow on it for us, and he draws us in by that. The Apostle John takes this concept of sin and the three things that the fruit offered, which was good, pleasant, and desirable, right? And he takes this concept and he applies it to all sin. He says, for, that is, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. 1 John 2.16 the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Not of the Father, but is of the world. Three things there that are mentioned in those verses. And I believe that they coincide perfectly with the nature of this tree. See, it was good for food. Good for food, the Bible says. This is kind of a way of saying that the fruit would satisfy their flesh. So this is, I think, this applies directly to the lust of the flesh. See, when we choose to satisfy our flesh, we are also choosing to turn our back on God. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Paul writes about this kind of this battle that goes on. And he says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Same phrase that John uses in his his epistle. For the, lust, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So you can sense this struggle going on here. The flesh and the spirit. But the tree was good for food. It was satisfying to the, to the flesh. And so that's how sin draws you in. And then it says it was pleasant to the eyes. Pleasant to the eyes. And this is kind of a way of saying that it would satisfy our senses, our emotions. It was pleasant to the eyes. We would be then seeking to live by sight and not by faith, which is the opposite of what it says in the scriptures. This is what John talks about as the lust of the eyes. So it was good for food. It would satisfy the flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes. It was beautiful to look at. And you know that sometimes sin, like I said, wraps itself up in a beautiful little package and it looks good. And it is, the Bible says, pleasing for a time. Right? But then the effects and the consequences come in. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's kind of the, 
the encouragement to us as believers. He's telling us that's we need to make faith part of our everyday life. To walk by faith, to believe that God has the best for us. To step out in faith into the plan and purpose he has for our lives. And we know that walking by faith and not by sight is one of the most difficult things to do as a Christian, right? Because we don't literally see God. We don't have that, that interaction as we do with people that we can see and touch and feel. And yet we have to believe and trust that he's got the best for us. But the more we understand his character, the more we are in his word, the more we are in prayer and communion with him, he reveals himself to us more and more. And then we are able to trust and walk by faith, not by sight. And then we see one more thing in the nature of this tree, that it was desirable to make one wise. Desirable to make one wise. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Don't we all need, want to be wise? Don't we all, all want wisdom? Well, we're cautioned throughout the book of Proverbs and in other places in the Bible to choose wisdom over foolishness. That's something that we're encouraged to do. Choose wisdom over foolishness. And so when it says here that this tree this tree that would cause all these problems was desirable to make one wise, does that sound like a contradiction? Are we supposed to seek for wisdom or not? Well, we have to understand that there's really two sources of wisdom in this world. There's wisdom from God, which is going to lead us and guide us in the right direction, which is always going to be good for us, which is never going to be bad and then there's the wisdom of man, which many times will take us in a direction other than what God wants for our, our lives. And human wisdom represents this pride of life. You see, we're, we know better than God. Our wisdom is greater than his wisdom. Well, God may be leading us in a certain direction, telling us to do something, but we have a better way. And we've seen that throughout the scriptures. We've seen, seen even some of the, the great characters in the Bible decide to go their own way instead of God's way or instead of waiting on the Lord for those things, using, using human wisdom. And so we see these things that Satan might use in our lives and we go all the way back to the book of Genesis to find out what, the, what they represent and then John, in his, in his wisdom, you know, gives us an updated version of them, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But Satan really hasn't changed his tactics in all these years because he knows our weaknesses to satisfy our flesh and to put our own wisdom above the wisdom of God. Now, we may not do it consciously all the time, but a lot of times we will choose our own path instead of God's path. And Paul tells us that these things are actually against God, that they're of the world. And what's happening to this world? Well, it's fading away, and it's decaying. And as soon as sin entered in, everything started to change. 
You see, our culture is becoming more and more against the things of God. And we know that. If we're honest with ourselves, we look around and we certainly see, you know, we see violence in, in, every, in every place. And we know that that's not what God would want. And we see evil and wickedness man against man. And yet they try to do things in, uh, in government to change the outcome. But it's a heart thing, as we've spoken about over the last several weeks. So we, ne- we kind of get an idea of the nature of this tree. But you might have a question, is this tree itself evil? And, you know, you've probably seen depictions of this tree, the one that, you know, Adam and Eve take the fruit off of and decide to eat. And I don't know, maybe this tree was all scraggly and, and, you know, ugly and dark and black. And, you know, it looks really disgusting. And who would want to, you know, take anything and eat it off of that? So is this tree evil? That's only a depiction. And again, it probably looked very similar to all the rest of the trees in the garden. But I don't think the tree itself is evil. I don't think intrinsically there's anything evil or wicked about this tree. Because when we go back to the creation account, we see God saying, giving, actually giving his own commentary on his handiwork in creation. And he said, and, and it says several times, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. So I believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not in and of itself evil. Because the, the creation account actually sounds like poetry to our ears. It's so beautiful. It's beautiful in our minds when we think about it. It reveals the majesty of God. But there is one thing that ruins this sound of beauty in our ears. And that is the creation of this tree. But again, I don't think that God created evil when he created this tree. In Genesis 1.31, it says, Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. So evening and morning were the sixth day. The sixth day is the last day of creation. Unless you think that God created something else after that day, Exodus 20 puts that idea to rest when it says in verse 11 for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and he rested on the seventh day and then he blessed the seventh day the Sabbath and hallowed it so if the tree wasn't evil in and of itself was it the source of evil in other words was there something in maybe the attraction of the tree or the attraction of the fruit that caused man to commit evil and disobey God? Was there some maybe chemical uh, that came out of this fruit that attracted Eve and caused her and Adam to fall into this state of sin? But I don't think the Bible tells us that. It doesn't tell us that it was evil in and of itself. It doesn't tell us that it even contained or produced evil. But remember, if we go back of the knowledge of good and evil, right? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so just like we asked, well, what's wrong with wisdom? Well, what's wrong with knowledge? Isn't knowledge good? Doesn't the knowledge of good and evil kind of 
Help us make the right choices. Well, this is good. This is evil. I'll make sure I stay away from evil. Well, not really. See, they understood. Again, we said that they understood the concept. Conceptually, they understood good and evil. This is because God instructed them in what was good and what was evil. And the relationship they had with their creator meant that they didn't lack anything in what they needed to walk with God in righteousness. They had everything that they needed, but they wanted more. They wanted more. They weren't satisfied with just that beautiful relationship with God. It should have been enough for them to understand evil intellectually and conceptually, but they wanted to experience evil. They wanted to understand evil in a deeper way than what God was providing to them. They decided to disobey God. And when that happened, their understanding of good and evil moved from the intellectual to the experiential. Now no longer was this just a concept that they could and should trust God for. No longer was this just an idea that they would know that God has the best for them. But now they knew experientially what evil was. And that is when innocence was lost. That is when innocence was lost. Look what happens in Genesis two fifteen through 17. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Surely die. Did they die? They did not physically die that day. But something changed. Something changed that day that they ate of that tree. They experienced evil. They experienced the understanding, the knowledge of what evil was. They begin to feel shame. Remember, they wanted to cover themselves up. They never desired to do that before. Immediately, this relationship between them and God changed. We talked about knowledge. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Now we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies edifies love and knowledge will have an effect on our lives differently each of those things will affect us one will puff up and one will build up bible commentator david guzik writes about this verse he says the difference between puffs up and edifies or builds up is striking it's the difference between a bubble and a building some christians grow while others just swell. That's the difference between knowledge and love. Love builds up. Love love edifies. But knowledge, and again, we're talking about human knowledge, which goes beyond what God 
what God wants for you so that you decide that you want to do on your own, that will just puff you up. Thinking you're wiser, thinking you're smarter. So in this fall of man, right, in their pride, in their desire for more than what God had for them, and we should be content with what God has for us. We should not be seeking outside of that. Know that he's always got the best for you. You may think that you, that you want more, but God knows. In this fall, we see another character come upon the scene, right? When we go back and we look at Genesis chapter 3, we start to kind of unpack exactly what happens there. And in, in verses 1 through 5, we'll, we'll just look at this, at this scene here. And it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So you see how he starts to question God. He starts to put a seed of doubt in the mind of Eve. Did God really say, did you hear him right? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit trees of the garden. That was right. That's what God said. Of every tree in the garden you may eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God tell Eve not to touch the tree? No. He told Eve not to eat the fruit of the tree. So you see there's a subtle difference there. And even as Satan was putting this seed of doubt in Eve's mind, Eve herself was doubting whether God really said that. Do I, did I hear God right? Did I, or do I want to embellish on this a little bit. And again, pride comes in to this. And then the serpent said in verse 4 to the woman, you will not surely die. God's a liar, Eve. God's a liar. Now not, it isn't a, just a seed of doubt. He's blaspheming God to Eve. You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat it, Eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan begins with a seed of doubt and then goes in for the kill and finishes the human race off, basically, at that point and causes them to fall into sin. The Bible describes Satan as a liar, as a deceiver, as a tempter, as a murderer, a destroyer. Calls him a roaring lion. Calls him a schemer and an accuser of the brethren. He mischaracterizes God. He accuses God of holding back on us. And his main lie that was that God would somehow be threatened. Imagine this. That God would somehow be threatened by mankind knowing good and evil. That somehow mankind would, would be smarter than God. 
And God was threatened by that. This is the lie that, that the enemy was putting into the mind of Adam and Eve. He was telling them that God doesn't want you to challenge his authority, basically. And to a large degree, whenever we sin, we're challenging God's authority, aren't we? We're saying, God, you, you, I know better than you. And I don't believe you have authority over this aspect of my life, whatever it happens to be. And I'm going to do my own thing. And when we become so prideful, we challenge God's wisdom. We challenge God's authority. We go our own way. And we know that leads to disaster when we go our own way. Proverbs, 12, Pro- Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end of, is the way of death. It may seem right to you. You may think you have a better idea, but its way is the way of death. And you know how sin comes before you. There's always a grain of truth in it. And Satan told Eve, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. But what Satan didn't say is that knowing evil in that experiential way would damage Adam and Eve's relationship with God forever. Like most of us, We aren't always content with what God wants for us. We think he's somehow holding back. So we seek to make up that deficit, that that presumed deficit, by grasping for more and mostly to our own hurt. It would have been perfect. It was perfect. It would have been more than enough for Adam and Eve to just know and experience the goodness of God and to live in that perfect creation. But they desired more. So now there were two trees that are spoken of specifically in this account in Genesis, and we're going to look at the other tree. So we looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life. The tree of life was also a literal tree in the midst of the garden, I mean, it says God planted this garden. He planted the tree. And it's mentioned in here in this chapter of Genesis, but then it kind of disappears from Scripture until the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where it reappears. And I'm going to call the, no- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the bad tree for now, just because it, it's easier to get out. So just as this bad tree was among all the other vegetation in the garden and probably looked for the most part like the other trees, so did the tree of life. But what was the nature of this tree? And it doesn't really tell us that much in the scriptures, so a lot of this is conjecture. A lot of this, when I, when I did my pre- pre- preparation, I got a couple of different opinions about the nature of this tree of life. And so I'll I'll throw a couple of possibilities out there. Now, this isn't to be taken as gospel truth, but this is just looking into the nature of this tree. One, One of the possibilities is that it actually provided nutrition, which sustained and maintained life. And that's a possibility, that they 
that they ate of all of the trees and they may have eaten of the tree of life prior to the fall. And it was uh, that, that, but it was, seems unlikely that they needed to eat of it in order to keep from dying. Why? Because before there was sin, there was no death. So they didn't need to eat of this tree before sin entered in because there was no death. Adam and Eve were really created to live forever. The death only came into the picture as a result of sin. It says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. So that's where death came from. It came from sin. There was no death prior to that. But it might have provided some nutrients for necessary life, you know, for a vibrant, healthy life. And Adam and Eve could have eaten of it before the fall because the Lord God said in, in Genesis 2.16, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Of every tree you may freely eat. So the only prohibition God gives Adam and Eve is this bad tree. Everything else was permissible. But let's, let's take a look. Let's consider what God says about this tree now. After the fall. After the fall. Because just like in our lives, sin has consequences. Things change. So in Genesis 3.22, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is after the fall. This is after he takes of that fruit. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand... And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God banished him from the garden. God banished them from the garden. Now we don't know how large this garden was. It was probably very spacious and beautiful. But they were banished outside of the garden. And then God set up angels to stand guard. So that they could not get back into the garden and eat of this tree of life. Now, if they were able to partake of it before sin, they were prohibited now after, after sin. Imagine if Adam and Eve had snuck past those, those uh, angels standing guard with the flaming swords and grabbed a piece of fruit off the tree of life after they had sinned. Imagine if that happened. Well, they would be put into an eternal state of sin because it's the tree of life and it would be eternally, they would be eternally in sin in a sin-cursed world because remember, the curse did not only come upon mankind, it came upon the whole earth. That's why we see things decay. That's why we see Floods and storms and volcanoes and natural disasters that was not intended to happen in the garden. Never intended to be that way. So, not only did Adam and Eve's relationship with God change, the earth changed at that time. And God, in his mercy, really, prohibited them from eating from this tree of life. Who would want to live eternally 
in a world filled with pain and sorrow. Who would want that? I know I wouldn't want that. And actually, death is the one thing that kind of gives us relief from the trials of this life. Now, I say that with one caveat, and that is unless we know God, the trials and sorrows of this life are just going to follow us into the next life, and even worse, as the Bible describes. But God gives us a better way, doesn't he? He wants us to live eternally, but he wants us to live eternally in his presence and with joy unexpressible, unexplainable, forever. Really the way it was intended to be before the fall. And how does he reveal this plan to us? How does this all come about? He reveals it through his son, Jesus Christ. God reveals himself to all men. And he gives all men an opportunity to come to him in faith. To take part in everlasting life. Not in a sin-filled and a sin-cursed world. But in perfection forever. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we pray for. And that's what we pray for our friends and family and those we know who don't know the Lord. That they can join us in eternity with God in a new heaven and a new earth. Well, why do we need a new heaven and a new earth? Well, we know that this earth is passing away. We know that this earth is decaying. We know that this earth is in upheaval. And so if we were going to have perfection with God eternally, there would have to be another change that takes place in order for that to happen. Some think it's a complete do-over. Like God will just start fresh, destroy everything completely, blow it all up, and start over. But we don't really see that as a pattern in the scriptures. You know, when the fall happened, he, he didn't blow everything up and start over, right? Things just changed. It's just an extension of history in a, different, in a different way. And just like he does with us, right? When, we're, when we come to him, when we repent... He doesn't destroy us and then build us back up again, right? He kind of restores us back to what we were intended to be. He restores us back into that right relationship with him when we finally submit and admit our need. But the Bible does teach that something will change in this earth, that this present earth will be dissolved or destroyed or changed in second peter chapter 3 we get this description in verses 11 through 13 peter writes therefore since all these things will be dissolved what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness just a little side note here this earth is passing away what peter is asking here is are you right with god are you right with god This is temporary. Something's going to happen that will bring you into eternity someplace. So Peter says, this this earth, all these things will be dissolved. 
In verse 12, he says, looking for, the, and looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Something's going to happen, some cataclysmic event. Don't know exactly what that's like. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't we look for that? Don't we long for that? A new heavens and a new earth? So again, it's not a total destruction. It's just a change. Because even in that passage in Second Peter, it's in the context of him talking about the days of Noah, right? Where there was a cataclysmic event that occurred on the earth. The earth did not melt away. Eight people were saved through that flood. And when they came out on the other side, things were, many things were the same, right? But many things were different also. Many things were the same, but many things were different. So Peter kind of takes this idea and he puts it in the context of a new heavens and a new earth. And then we see the tree of life return. This is awesome. The tree of life was there in the garden, that perfect environment. And now we see it returning again in Revelation 2.7. John, John writes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus talking to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is a future event for us as believers. To him who overcomes, how do we overcome? By putting our faith and trust in Jesus is how we overcome. What does it say in the Gospel of John? In this life you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, Jesus says, I have what? I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So this tree of life reappears in the paradise of God, in this new heavens, in this new earth. In Revelation 22, verse 2, in the middle of its street, get this scene in your mind, and on either side of the river was, a tr- was the tree of life. Now, I don't know, I guess the tree must be split down the middle, and its roots go on either side of the river, and it provides 12 different fruits, each yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Beautiful, beautiful picture of this tree of life. In verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. New heavens, new earth. Restored. Only there for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. If you're an overcomer, that's what, that's what you've done. That's what you believe. And we all have these assumptions about heaven that maybe even come from our childhood. And most of them, honestly, are unbiblical. So I hate to burst your cloud, burst your bubble here. Not that it won't be glorious and wonderful. It's going to be more than we can ever imagine but our expectations will be probably different than the reality. Randy Alcorn wrote a great book called Heaven. And he gives us this 
picture, this description, biblically, from, from biblical proof about what the Bible says about heaven. And he cites a few examples of the differences between what most people think of heaven to what actually the Bible says. What we assume about heaven is that it's a, non, it's a non-earth. There's no earth. But what the Bible says is it's a new earth. We assume in heaven that we, it might be unfamiliar to us, right? Otherworldly. But the Bible actually tells us that it'll be familiar. It'll be comforting. It'll be uh, earthly. We assume that in heaven we may be dis, dis, um, disembodied, just these spirits floating around. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we will receive a new body, suitable for eternity. Whatever that environment is, we'll get a new body. Some people assume that there's no time and space, but there will be time and space. Some people think it's a static environment. It never changes. But the Bible teaches that it's dynamic, that it, there will be change. Some people think there'll be nothing to do in heaven. But the Bible teaches that it's a place to worship God and to serve God and to rule. There'll be purposeful work to accomplish. There'll be friends to enjoy. Some people actually might think it might be boring in heaven. What are we going to do? Sit around on a cloud all day just playing our harps and and singing songs? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it will be a fascinating place and time. We will never, ever be bored. Never, ever be bored. It's the presence of the wonderful. But it's not exactly what you might be thinking. So in order to give us a picture, because I know we're visual people and, and these things tend to stick a little bit better if there's something that we can look at, we're going to show a video, okay? And just bear with me, it's about five and a half minutes, but it's a, it's a great video about heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth. And then I'll come back and I'll close and, um, and introduce the third tree. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted... God out, and we wanted to create a world 
apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. 
the focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So that's, that's the Bible project. Uh, those guys are really good putting together videos and explanations of things and Bible studies, um, Bible project. Um, but it helps explain it, right? So, yeah, so it's a beautiful thing to think about, but they did speak about a third tree there in that video. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When Jesus Christ hung on that cross, he was taking the sin of humanity, past, present, and future, upon himself on that cross. He was actually becoming cursed because of the sin of the world. He took it upon himself on that third tree, the cross. And it represents the, the means by which Christ redeemed all of you who put faith in his sacrifice. The beginning we spoke about a tale of two cities, right? Right? In chapter, nine, in, cha- in chapter 9 of book 3 of that book, it's interesting how it's broken up into different books, we see this character, Sidney Carton, and he repeats this one Bible verse a few times over in, in the book. And for him, he recalls these words as a source of hope, a source of redemption, a source of resurrection. And not only personally, but for society and for the nation, too. And these are the words he spoke. This is, these are the verses that he spoke. Because again, the new heavens and the new earth are representative of a new life, restoration, and resurrection. And it says in John 11, verses 25 and 26, when when Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus had died and they were seeking the Lord to come and, and do something about it, he had this beautiful picture of what he was going to accomplish with this, with this sacrifice on the cross. And to reassure them, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the ultimate question for all of us is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that this world is ending? Do you believe that God has a beautiful plan for each and every person who put their faith in in Jesus Christ, in that sacrifice? Do you believe that there's good and evil, light and darkness, right and wrong, life and death? 
And do you believe that when we choose Jesus, we choose life? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.